0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Adventist Hoops podcast. I'm Dustin. And today I am joined by La Sierra University's women's head coach, Kevin Mitchell. Kevin, welcome to the Adventist Hoops podcast.
1: Uh, thank you for having me. Great to be here.
0: So Kevin, for those that may not know you very well, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and your, your journey that's led you to this point that you're the head coach uh, for the women's team at La Sierra University.
1: So I've been um, at La Sierra University for roughly 10 years, and I've coached on both the men's side and the women's side. Uh, When I started my journey, I started off as a volunteer. um, And after that first year of volunteering um, on the men's side, the head coach offered me the position as the associate head coach. Um, So I became his associate head coach um, and was part of the men's program for a few years, and then they made a transition where they um, needed a coach for both the women's and the men's side. So I decided to transition um, over to the women's side because at the time I saw uh, the group of young ladies that were part of that program, I thought it was a great opportunity for me to uh, build my program from the ground up. And um, it it's, it was an incredible ride. I, the first year, I thought maybe we were going to win um, maybe one or two games. <laughs> and it was uh, a lot of fun because those young ladies just really bought into what we were doing. Uh, we were a senior-laden team, and we ended up winning 11 games that year and were a couple games short. This was May- 2017? 2017, yes, yeah. my first year. So it was great to see how that team responded. And you know, when I first took the job, um, my strategy and roadmap was five years. Um, I'm sorry, three years, because I didn't really understand the dynamic of the program. I wanted to know what kind of players had been integrated into the program and how we could start to trend upwards and, and change the narrative because we were a program that wasn't very competitive um, at that time. So when I sat down with the coaching staff, uh, I wanted them to understand that we needed to change the dynamic, figure out how to coach, teach and mentor uh, each and every day, integrate not only incredible student athletes, but just families, because the families are a part of that recruitment process as well. Uh, And I think with each year, um, we went through bumps, um, like every program. But we continue to trend upwards and get better in, in a lot of different areas. And where that philosophy kind of came from uh is during the off season I do a lot of player development. So I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of the top guys in the NBA. Um I used to work with Drew Hanlon at Pure Sweat Basketball. And then how did you get connected to him? So that's a funny story because uh, Drew and I connected on YouTube one day. Um, By the way, if
0: people don't know what PureSweat is, I mean, it's got like 250,000 followers on Instagram and he's probably the top NBA trainer out there.
1: Yes, Drew is amazing and probably one of the best, if not the best out there. Um, But we got connected on YouTube. And he started talking to me about Pure Sweat and the company and what he was looking to do with it. Um, and I'm big on meeting people face to face and shaking their hand. And I had a number of other organizations or um, gurus reach out to me: Gannon Baker, uh, Impossible Training. And I wanted to meet Drew and just kind of figure out like who he was at the core. Uh, so I actually flew out to St. Louis and went to meet him. And he had a clinic um, In the fir- at that clinic, he had Jordan Clarkson who was actually in the process of going through the pre-draft at that time. Um, and I got to see a little bit of what he did. We had a great dialogue, great conversation. And uh, after that conversation, he asked me to be a part of Pure Sweat. Um, and I was with Pure Sweat for roughly, I think five years. So I would help Drew with his uh, pre-draft and off-season workouts with Jason Tatum and Brad Beal, Joe Owen Bede, uh, most of the, probably some of the top guys you see in the NBA today. And then I was also concurrently working with uh, Oneko um, who's currently with the Atlantic Hawks. Uh, and I, I've been training O for, man, probably five or six years now. Um, and I've also worked with Jalen Clark, who is now currently with the Minnesota Timberwolves, worked very closely with Eric Mobley and his son, um, Eric Mo- um, um, Evan Mobley and Isaiah Mobley, who are currently with the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I've had a great journey. I've been very blessed because I've had a great circle of people um, who were willing to give of themselves and really just helped me uh, grow my knowledge in this game, not only from a player development standpoint, but just little coaching nuances and things like that, things that they've seen from their experiences. So it's, it's been great.
0: What's some of the biggest things that you took away from that experience uh, over those five years with Drew and working with those NBA
1: guys? I mean, what did you what was that like being in the gym with those guys? i mean the the biggest probably the biggest thing is when those guys walk through that door to get prepared for their workout uh, they understand why they're there they understand their purpose for being there and they have a laser like focus on um, just getting better with with their reps i mean their their reps are at game speed um, at all times, and a lot of it is what what we can do to build their game and grow their game um for the next season and a lot of it with those micro skills sometimes i think the the challenge with some player development coaches sometimes is that they try to add all of this um flash to a player's game versus just focusing on what they're really good at and kind of enhancing those micro skills um and the things that apply and transition to, you know, whatever that team needs or whatever that level is that they're going to. So I think Co- that's probably the biggest thing.
0: Coach, one of the things that I have thought a lot about as a uh, youth coach is how do I instill that work ethic in my younger players you know, when I was a coach in Southern California, I took my team over to watch a USC practice, just hoping, you know, hey, with them on the sideline, watching how hard these guys are going, you know, they they can see that, hey, I have another level, I have another gear. But that's something that I've always kind of like, is it is it possible to instill that, you know, verbally or just by inspiring or do they have to see it or is it something that's internal in a player that may have more it may have more to do than just basketball it may maybe their life situation, maybe their drive, their goals that they have. Like how, how can you, I guess you can't force it into a player. Can you?
1: No. I mean, I think to your point, it's a combination of all of those things. Uh, I think one of the, the challenges today with youth basketball is uh, I think the parents sometimes are too involved.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think if a young man or, or a young lady Who wants to play this sport, you know, allow them to go through whatever their journey is going to be, even if you've played yourself, collegiately, professionally, because everybody's legacy is different. Um, I think a lot of times what happens is we get so caught up in nonstop play, 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 but we don't really develop the kids. And I think that's where if you look at some of the uh, international organizations, international teams, international youth, When they go into academies and and things like that, they are with those academies, probably for the duration of their basketball journey, where I think here in America, we're always looking for the next best thing. You know, the next best thing, the most um, the flashiest thing, the thing with the most uh, social media presence um, in, in every I think. For the youth, what they really need to focus on is, and this is how I train. If you're in grade school, train you as if you're already in middle school. If you're in middle school, if you have those skill sets or those micro skills, I try to train you as if you're already in high school. If you're in high school, train you as if you're already in college. Mm
2: -hmm. And a lot
1: of the stuff is we start from the ground with the basic fundamentals. I don't care who you are, where you're at, what you're ranked because everybody has some deficiency in their game that they need to, you know, grow. And I think that's where, you know, in my experience with uh Pure Sweat and with Drew and watching some of the things that he was doing, he put we put together a lot of packages that are specific for that player based on their position or the role that they had with their team. And so I really adopted that kind of philosophy, and one of the things we always talk about it is a SWOT analysis, which is, excuse me, uh, a business term that stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I think it's something that should be applied at the youth level. Um, the The strengths obviously speak for themselves, but the key focus is look at their weaknesses and the threats to their game that will prevent them from having a successful uh, moment on the court with their basketball experience. So I think the other thing that happens is coaches and families try to solve world hunger in a small window of time. And especially with youth players, they don't process things in that way. You know, you'll, sometimes you'll have a player development coach that'll try to teach them 10 things in a workout when really all they need to work on is that spring and summer is maybe their weekend development, finishing with contact or without contact, um, understanding how to get the spot, certain spots on the floor to lift into their shots. So it just depends on the dynamic of that player and what you want to do with your team. And I think player development coaches or any coach, um especially um, travel ball or you know some of these other programs that are offered during the spring and summer they should be connecting with their high school coaches and vice versa they should be building bridges with one another to help that student athlete grow Uh, i think sometimes the transactional stuff gets in the way
2: Mm.
1: versus just building bat. the the instead of building a basketball player and being transformational I think a lot of coaches are more worried about the transactional piece and really in grade school and middle school, it should be development, development, development. How much preparation did you put into some of those NBA workouts? A lot. I mean, it's so in working with Oneka, for example, during his off season when he, so he was playing with Chino Hills um, at the time when, and they were arguably and still, or, arguably, the best high school team that ever played a game because they had Lonzo ball, LaMelo ball, LeAngelo ball on that team. And initially, his role was to rebound, outlet, block shots, and defend. And in order, when I first met him, I literally sat down with him and, and his family. I wanted to meet everybody because. I wanted them to understand that this was going to be a we journey. And in that we journey, they were going to have to be patient to help, help him with that development process, because at the time he didn't drive, uh, he also had his commitment, his high school uh, commitment with his academics and his team. So when I looked at his game, what I was looking at, and a lot of the stuff we talked about with Pierce sweat was. Function in a role that you have right now with your team while preparing for the role that you want to have. Mm -hmm. And so he had a pre-draft report, I think his, after his freshman year of high school. And then that pre-draft report, it listed a bunch of things that they said he couldn't do. Um, And you had all of the critics and, you know, all of the, you know, resident experts that were saying he can't do this, he can't do this. I printed that list and showed it to him and i said this is what all of the experts are saying that you do not have in your skill set as a basketball player. And hypothetically, there let's say there were 10 things or 12 things. This year we're going to we're going to focus on these 3 and that's how i we kind of built that strategy and roadmap. This year we're focusing on these 3. Next year we're focusing on these 3. The following year we're going to focus on these 3. So hopefully we knocked out, you know, six to nine of those twelve things that they said that he lacked with his skill set. Um mm-hmm. uh, and that was all we focused on each year. It was just those three things. It wasn't a lot of uh raz and pizzazz and flashy drills. It's what are the fundamental things that you're and I reached out to his high school coach. Coach, what do you need Oneka to do to be successful in your program? And we had a great conversation um And then we just built this game up from there. And it, I think that's where it comes from. We write, you know, you write everything down because sometimes if you get things on paper, it's easy to kind of strategize and formulate what you need to do to help grow that athlete or that student athlete mm-hmm. to be successful.
0: And, coach, you mentioned a YouTube channel that you connected with Drew Hamlin on. Uh, do you have a YouTube channel that you uh do a lot of training videos on or
1: so I used to and I'm not great with uh social media and YouTube and all of that stuff. It was just one night I was sitting around, and I said, let me post this video. And if I remember correctly, I think Drew found my video, reached out to me. Wow. Uh, and we had a great conversation. And it's, it's nice funny be. because I used to be that guy, I was uh sponsored by Skills at the time. So they were kind enough to pretty much send me everything they had in their inventory. I would walk in the gym with all of that equipment and set all of that stuff up. And we're going to do ladders and we're going to do hurdles and resistance bands. And then by the time we got done with the workout, that portion of the workout, they didn't have enough energy to do uh, the regular basketball workout. So. I, I made a transition where I said, "Listen, there are resident experts that do speed, agility, quickness. They do strength training. They, yeah. you know, they specialize in these areas. So I'm just going to focus on the basketball portion of it. Um, and that's how I kind of made that paradigm shift. Do
0: you like using any of the basketball training equipment that's out there? Because you can use a lot of aids in building skills." You know, there's everything from, you know, these special cones to tr- training mats, uh, the vision, you know, dribbling uh, goggles. Um, you know, do you find that any of those are useful or do you not use any any gimmicks, so to speak, like equipment
1: in your training sessions? So, so I will use cones mm-hmm. um, and I will use some of that equipment. It just depends on what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think, you know, for all of the the people that are out there doing player development you know whatever works for that player to help them grow or whatever works to help you grow and develop your brand you know to each his own yeah um, i think the you know the real the real growth opportunities are for for players is you get them in situations and in small-sided games and uh, whether it's one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, scenario-based stuff, once you get past the um, the micro-skill piece of it, where do they apply it at? And that's where I think certain players are making um, a quicker climb or making a better transition for whatever le- level that they're trying to get to. Because when you're doing drills one on you know you can look like a drill all-star you can I mean, i've had student athletes or athletes that we've i've put through drills and they look amazing and then the moment that you put a body on them or in front of them or that second side help or that third side help is there uh that's where they begin to struggle with the decision yeah. making and making their reads and things like that so, for sure
0: so yeah making making every drill competitive once you've mastered kind of that basic foundational skill that's great Uh, Coach, I want to go back further. Are you from California? Are you from Southern California?
1: No, I'm from, so I'm from, uh, I was born in Pittsburgh and I was in uh, Philadelphia in New Jersey uh, for a few years and I came out to California in 94. Okay. uh, And I've been out here since then. So I moved to um, Monterey, uh, I'm sorry, Marina, which is just outside of Monterey. And then I transitioned from Monterey to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz to SoCal. And I've been in SoCal for since. So I, I saw that you played at Bethany College
0: there in Scotts Valley, which is a CalPAC or was a CalPAC opponent of mine when I played at Pacific Union College. Are they still in the California Pacific College? No? Okay.
1: no, they shut down, uh, man. A little... Oh, they did? Oh, they shut down many, many years ago. Hey, don't
0: make me feel too old. I mean, that wasn't that <laughs> long
1: while I was playing them. But uh, you know I,
0: what I remember about that place is that mini stadium, the mini arena. I mean, it was like the floor, and then it just rose straight up, and you had those uh, stands right you know, surrounding the court. It was kind of a cool, a cool building.
1: Yeah, it was probably the smallest basketball venue in American <laughs> history. <laughs> uh, I but think- it was a, it was a stadium, in my opinion. That Whoa. was a
0: small little mini arena.
1: It was, and I, I think they. If I remember correctly, they only had the seating on the sidelines. You didn't have the baseline. I think it only went five rows up. And yeah. Only yeah, I was going to say it's not a huge seating, but <laughs> yeah, you could fit like maybe <laughs> it's truly a pit. I mean, the court was, in, was. A, in a pit, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: what did you take out of your time there? Uh, and you played for a coach um, who. Played in the NBA. I apologize. I don't remember his, uh, John block coach block. Yeah. John block. Yeah. What what did you take out of your time as a, as a player there? And what is something that you, um, took from your playing days that you've incorporated into your coaching?
1: Man coach. So that's what was the most intriguing thing about that experience was having an opportunity to be around someone that had been in the NBA I mean, what better education than that? I mean, he played with Bill Bradley and at that time, probably some of the best players in the game. Uh, And coach was just very, very detailed with everything that he did. Uh, Very meticulous with everything that he did. Wanted, you know, old school coach that, you know, got in your face, challenged you, really pushed you to be the best that you can be and got the best, I think, out of, uh, the talent that we had um uh, with that team uh the gym the gym environment was grimy every day and just super competitive um and i i think i got more out of that experience just from being around him his culture the environment um and what it really intrigued me um with the idea of maybe getting involved getting involved in coaching myself mm-hmm. um, in my future Cause, I never thought I would be where I was at, where I'm at today. You know, I thought I'd play basketball maybe when I had my kids, you know, train my kids or support them and walk off into the sunset. And um, the spiritual component was great as well. You know, it's I think spiritual nourishment's good for everybody, um, especially with, you know, with what we're seeing in the world today. Um, and not that I'm fanatical about the spirituality, but I have a relationship with God. And I think that's important for, for everyone.
0: Was it hard to transition from a player to a coach? What what shifts in mindset or focus did you have to make? I,
1: well, I think the shift in mindset is just understanding how to build bridges and connect with players. You know what I mean? Because as a coach... head coach you know they're looking at you to kind of be um the ceo of your organization and to run your ship and you really have to figure out you know one who you are as a team what what the dynamic of that team is what positions you have really you have great skill sets in and the ones that where you need to really build players up and grow players uh, and I think it's a constant chess game of what do we have to do to build a program? And as a player, all, you know, you put your shoes on, you put your jersey on, you the ball goes up and you're just worried about, you know, scoring on the offensive end or keeping somebody in front of you on the defensive end. And you leave the strategy and the time, the game management, the timeouts, the, the rotations and all of that to, you know, the coaching staff. So, trying to figure out how to bring that all together so that it blends nicely, that uh, while also helping a team understand how to remain composed in adverse situations, how to respond to the adversity of the game, it, it's you know, a lot of people think that they're ready for that head coaching seat, and it's a tough seat to be in. I mean, when you're an assistant. Um, you have a lot of responsibility, but when you make that transition from an assistant coach to a head coach, it's a different animal. It all stops um, with you. Yeah, and it all and you're the face of the program. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, like any organization in corporate America or any basketball program, it starts from the top down. So um, well, some of it's resource-based, but, you know, some sure. of it is just it's, it starts with the head coach.
0: You certainly made the transition well, and you mentioned earlier that when you got to La Sierra, not got to La Sierra, but when you started uh, as the head coach in 2017, you had a three-year plan, and it seemed like that three-year plan kind of panned out well. You ended up winning Coach of the Year in 2020, and uh, La Sierra made it to the uh, conference tournament, and um, I was just curious, like, why do you think you were chosen for, for that Coach of the Year award in 2020?
1: Well, I was really surprised uh, because I thought that there were some other coaches within our conference that had successful, really successful seasons as well. Um, I think the reason I was, well, I know the reason I was chosen was that we had won, I think, six games the year before, and we ended up winning 10 more games uh, the following year. And a lot of it was just um the type of student athletes we had integrated into our program, because again, you know when I sat down with the coaching staff to speak with them, we had a heavy focus on um integrating i mean or recruiting those families as well because they're as much of a part of the collegiate journey as the student athlete um, and I think we just had a really competitive group uh we weren't great at everything i mean every team goes through uh their battles uh you know during the game or their 5 minute wars or 10 minute wars during the game and it's it's really funny because i think that year we turned the ball over a ton um but we defended at a pretty good clip and we were more efficient offensively uh, I think there were games we won the rebounding war at the right time. I think there were games we won the turnover war at the right time. I think there were games we won the f- uh, field goal percentage battle. You know, when it meant... when it, Just um, find a way, whatever it is. Just, just find a way. So, and that wow. group, that was a great group of young ladies.
0: And fast forward now, 2023, 2024 season, and you guys have a tough schedule. Uh, just last night, we're recording this uh, November 16, 2023. Uh, you play at University of California at San Diego. Um, you know, some people might question, "Hey, why why are we why are we playing this huge school? It's um, you know, <laughs> certainly it's not necessarily an equal uh, contest as far as just the." But, you know, you still have to play the game because you never know what might happen. What do you take out of uh, that experience of playing an NCAA Division I opponent?
1: So for us, it's I, I intentionally make our non-conference schedules very tough. I mean, the majority of those games, I'm looking for opponents that have made deep runs in tournaments or their programs uh, have you know, some level of prestige, or they're just a higher level of basketball. For me, playing the Division I programs and for our program, it helps us to, uh, I think, understand where the areas that we need to grow, uh, but also give some humble pie also to some of our players that may think that they're better than what we really are, where our feet are at in the moment. Um, but also to help our team as well. And it's a different, and you know, it's a different level of size, strength, speed. Um, and I think it's a great, it was a great experience last night because um, Coach is Tara uh sister, for one. Um, they're a program that's on the rise as well. Um, and when I looked at their roster, they were really long um and really athletic and we are um, a little bit smaller this year than we've been in previous years so i wanted to compete against a team that was really long um, and athletic to see how we would respond and then figure out how we can adjust as we get closer to conference because we with our team being as new as it is i have forecasted that we're probably not even going to start hitting our stride or hitting our run till mid or late December. Mm-hmm. So if we get beat up in this process, that's okay. It's you know Bruce Lee said it best. You know losing is education.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we try to take each of these challenges as education, whether we win or to lose the game. Um,
0: I think those kind know. of games are, when it boils down to it, almost more of a psychological test than it is a physical one because it really asks the question is of who, who are you, you know, are you going to back down from this? Are you going to completely just kind of shut down mentally or are you going to engage? Are you going to compete? Are you going to fight? And um, I think that unlocks something in players when they realize like, we have 38 more minutes of this. <laughs> am I going to, am I going to just going to like check out here? are we just going to try to like make it to the the buzzer or are we going to fight? And uh, I think that's one of the most beneficial things in those games that I've been a part of.
1: 100%. I mean, it's a lot of it is you're trying to find out, you know, what the identity is of your team. You know, if they're mentally tough, if they're physically tough, if they're able to continue to execute in the chaos of the game, um, as the strategies are changing, the, the coverages are changing. You know, what adjustments are they able to make? Because sometimes in those environments, it's such it's such a hostile or loud environment, they can't hear us as coaches. So if they've been coached up well enough, uh and they've the practices have been more competitive than um the game environment. And they have a basketball IQ and um the ability to make decisions, it'll those things will start to reveal themselves in a game not only for them as players but for you as a coach a head coach or your coaching staff and you start figuring out well we're pretty good at this but not so good at this we need to grow it in this area here Um, so that like that game or any of those games are great for us because I think there's this urban legend that you know, the hierarchy is D one, D two, D three, NAI, JUCO, or JUCO, NAI. Yeah. I think that that legend is urban legend is, you know, inaccurate. I mean, there are a lot of D two schools that'll beat D one schools, D three schools that'll beat D two, NAI schools that'll beat D three, D two, D one schools. I don't know if you saw, but uh
0: Washington at Venice last was last week, they took Morgan State to the brink. They were six points up with uh, two minutes left in the game. So it can happen. And it's happened a few times uh, with our, a couple of our Adventist colleges uh, on the men's side and almost happened on the women's side. So it, it can happen, you know? And I think that some of those games are actually milestones for individual players as well. Like, Hey, I just scored double digits. I scored 11 points against, you know, division one, uh, NCAA, uh, competition. I scored 15 points. I scored 20 points. Like, look what I, you know, I can do that. If I can do this against them, I can do this against someone in our league.
1: 100%. I mean, there is a young lady on, uh, UC San Diego that used to play in a CalPAC conference hmm. and she's now playing for UC yeah, San there you Diego. Go. There you so, go. I mean, they op. It, it's, I think sometimes what happens with going back to your conversation about the youth and the transition that, Student athletes have to make it's not about the level that you're at because if you look at the n b a you have Duncan Robinson and you have some of these other players that Dennis Rodman and Scotty Pittman from back in the day that played at n a i a schools that played at d three schools and they ended up becoming n b a players. It's not always about you know playing at the top levels versus you know where do you where do you feel most at home? Mm
2: -hmm. Where do
1: you feel you're going to have the best experience? And it's not just about basketball. Like one of the things I tell parents all the time, the thing that you really need to think about when you're going through that recruitment journey is when, if you can't play basketball, Mm. your student athlete going to still be happy Mm. attending that institution. Because every coach is going to try to put out their best presentation for that student athlete that they're trying to recruit. In the end, if they have an injury, they become academically ineligible. They, I don't know, shut down athletics. Is your young man or young lady still going to be happy attending that institution? Because the ball's gonna stop bouncing for the vast majority of these student athletes. Use basketball as a great vehicle to get an, an education, um, you know, a free education, a greatly reduced education. Understanding how understand how being a part of a, a sports team transitions into corporate life or to working life, and if you're good enough to play at the next level, you know, and you're blessed enough to have that opportunity, you know, cross that bridge when you get there. But to walk into those experiences sometimes especially at our level with the mentality of well i'm going to the nba or i'm going pro or i'm going it's tough to get to that level Mm -hmm. so use basketball as a vehicle to get your undergrad get your masters get your phd Mm -hmm. uh, because i've seen and or maybe one day yourself become a coach Mm -hmm. uh, because i've seen some players that they may not have been um as athletically gifted as some of the other players, but they end up becoming incredible coaches. Mm. Um and I've seen the other side of it as well. So and I've seen those players that they've come in and their freshman year, they're not that great, but by the time they get to their senior year, they're a pro caliber or pro level player and they can go overseas and have a nice career. So Coach, what do you think
0: about this trend of kids going to post-grad programs as opposed to just going to a college and whether it's a JUCO or, you know, any sort of level and then transferring from there. I mean, um, I I've talked to a handful of, of kids over the last three or four months that have gone that route. And I'm just
1: curious your opinion about that. So I think, you know, whatever decisions that athlete or their circle makes, you know, it's up to that student athlete. I think that a lot of times, um, you know, when you talk about hold bags or kids that are looking for an extra year of competition, it, it depends on the situation because if a kid, if their birthday and birth year uh, falls into that category where they're really young for their um, age group, You know, I think it makes sense um, in those uh, with those kind of challenges. Mm -hmm. I also think depending on, you know, the environment you're in, because in California, I mean, there are areas in California or anywhere in the country where you could go one city block or drive a mile down the road and you're going to find a a high school, a college, a basketball game or a, a highly competitive game. But then you might be in a geographical area where the closest venue is, you know, 25 to 50 to 100 miles away. And you don't have the resources or you don't have the, um, the notoriety or the marketing to really promote that student athlete because they could be a great athlete, have a 4.5 GPA. But they just don't have the right circle around them to help them make that transition um, to the next level. So I think post grad, depending on you know your situation, it's good in some respects, but I also think it's bad in this. I think that in the this era of basketball, and I think what's hurting a lot of student athletes, um, we had COVID, so a lot of these student athletes have lost a year or two of development. And a lot of these programs have lost a year or two of development. And I think sometimes the idea of holding a kid back is not great because are you holding that young man or that young woman back because they didn't have the right circle around them to understand in their age group that they're in to understand, there's a nutritional hygiene component there's a sleep hygiene component there's a speed agility quickness there's a strength training component there's uh player development as we've been talking about and then putting them in games where they could see you know what they're good at what they're not good at where the, the areas that they need to grow i think that if you have a young man that is Competitive at the level they're at or a young lady, but you decide to hold them back to compete against young men or young women that haven't gone through physical maturation. I think it's a disadvantage to that person that you've held or that student athlete that you've held back. Mm-hmm. They need to go through that adversity. They need to compete against that level of competition, even if they have um, hard moments or hard you know, periods, hard quarters, hard seasons. Because then you again it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. you find out how they're going to respond
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think I think sometimes we get so caught up in the hype of social media and the like and the favorite and the um, those things we forget about at the core foundationally what it means to build a basketball player. We get so caught up in the backpacks, the shoes the flights the You know the logo on the jersey um and i think it's it's for the kids that are able to compete at that level it's great for the ones that need the development develop them like i have a young lady that i've been working with since she was she was uh, in sixth grade and one day and a lot of the times when i'm asking questions or interacting with parents or i'm interacting with student athletes i'm trying to find out who they are at the core and what our shared vision and mission is for where they need to be two to three years from now four to five years from now and in sixth grade i asked this one lady uh one young lady in this example what do you want to be when you grow up she said i want to be a neurosurgeon and she was in sixth grade and my first thought was okay, wait a minute, you actually researched this. Because a lot of kids want to be a fireman, a policeman, you know what I mean? They want to be an NBA player, a WNBA player. Or just a doctor.
2: But or she just specifically
1: doctor. wanted to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> you said neurosurgeon. <laughs> so right there and then, without knowing a lot about her, I knew I could give her a level of detail where she was going to try to process it and try to execute it because mm-hmm. of the research she did. To find out that there is a specialty in neurosurgery, and then I, on the flip side, I had a gentleman, a parent, walk up to me. His son's nine or ten years old, if I remember correctly, at the time, and he said, "Coach," and he was really frantic and upset. "Coach, I need to talk to you." And, "Okay, sure. Let's let's have a conversation. What's what's going on?" And he said, "I need to know where you see my kid. Is he D1, D2, D3?" And I looked, you know, I thought he was kidding, but he was, he was serious. And he goes, coach, I need some advice. Can you tell me, you know, what I, what he needs to do, what I need to do. And I said, well, if you want my advice, I would advise your, you know, tell your um, family or tell your son, get plenty of rest, eat your leafy green vegetables, you know, drink milk. And no, no coach, I'm really serious. I, I want to know what he needs to do to be D1. I can't forecast that for you because you haven't even gone through physical maturation. I don't know where you're going to be next year. I don't know where you're going to be when you get to, um, I don't know, eighth grade. Or is the kid going to have the personal interest and desire and passion to, you know, do what it's going to take to get there? Yeah. 100%. And then you, but there's also the physical attributes. I mean, at that time, I think dad was 5'6", and mom was 5'4". If you want to play Division One basketball, and I'll use my son as an example, uh, when we first had that conversation, he said, dad, I want to go to Kentucky. And I, that's not in your cards, son. And that was not to discourage him. And he said, why? I said, because Kentucky, if you look at their guards and you're a guard, they're 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, you're 5'9", at this time. Now, if you have a growth spurt, and I'm 6'2", 6'3", with shoes on, he has uncles that are 6'7", 6'8". If you have a growth spurt, you know, maybe that's a possibility, but that's not to say you can't go to college. Let's look at schools with um, small guards that, because to go to Kentucky, you have to be really dynamic at 5'10", or 5'11". But if you look over the last few years, and I think this is where a lot of coaches and a lot of programs and a lot of parents um get lost in the recruitment process, look at their rosters, look at the history of the type of players that they try to recruit. That's at every level. D1, D two, D three, NAI, JUCO, whatever. What are the history and what do they do with their programs? I think where sometimes some coaches fall short from high school or um the travel ball programs or transferring from a two-year to a four-year, they'll send an email, they'll reach out to a coach and say, hey, coach, I have this player that I think are great, that'll be great for your program. And the first thing I think is, well, how do you know that? Have you watched our games? Have you been to our practices? Have you seen our culture and the dynamic of what we do? Has that player been a part of it? So how do you know that they're going to be great for our program? Have you looked at the competition in our conference from the top, the, the teams that are at the top of our conference to the teams that are at the bottom of our conference. So how can you confidently confidently say that um, sure. that they'll be great for our program? And there's this illusion, I think, that you know this D one or nothing mentality, and they think that if you go to some of these other schools, or you come down to the NAI level, or you play at the NAI at NAI level, it's a step down. They don't, a lot of these handlers or coaches or parents or travel ball programs, I think they forget that there are a lot of bounce backs and we have the transfer portal and we have all of these other um, things that are in play. And what's really starting to happen, a lot of these kids that are jumping from program to program or going into the transfer portal, they find themselves sitting at home in August or in September because they think because of the name on the front of the jersey, it's not a big enough level um, for what they're looking for or what they want to do. I think an opportunity to play college basketball at any level is a blessing. It
0: can't just be a basketball decision, too, right? Because I mean, like you said, I mean, whatever the name is on your jersey, ultimately there's so many other factors that play in. Like, are you going to get a lot of playing time? Are you, are you, do you want that name on your jersey so much that you will sit on the bench for three or four years do you want to go somewhere where you're going to be an integral part of winning or building or even rebuilding a program um you know what are those things that are kind of the intangibles that i the few kids that i've talked to recently that are seniors that are like thinking about what they're where they're wanting to play next year it's just d1 or bust like you said and so i've been trying to talk about some of the other uh factors that they need to consider. And I think what you said earlier is just great advice about what happens if basketball stops, you know, are you still going to be happy there?
1: Well, and a great example, again, is the young lady last night that um, is now on UC San Diego. She played in a Cal PAC conference in NAI. And she did so well that she got noticed by this D one coach, when her former coach made the transition to division two and She, I think she at one point wasn't going to play and then she decided, you know, this is a great opportunity for me, but her journey was different. I think, you know, everybody's journey is different and everybody uh, may go through whatever the dynamics are in their basketball journey. Some may get there right away. Some may take a year or two. I tell the young ladies in my program and even with some of the young men that I've coached, listen. If you have an opportunity to go play at another level, go. I'm not the coach that I'm going to keep you here if you have a better opportunity because at our institution we don't offer full scholarships. Um, a lot of the NAI schools they're faith based. Um, some have more resources than others. Um, for us, we don't offer. We offer partial scholarships. So I, when I have those recruitment talks, I lay the foundation right from the beginning to let them know we're not able to offer as much money as other programs or institutions but if you're a full qualifier and things like that you get your fast you get your cal grant a or b you get your the one thing i can promise you is that we'll give you a great basketball experience and i'll do everything i can to help you get to that uh, finish line of getting your degree And then if you're blessed enough to have an opportunity to uh, get noticed by someone, I can potentially help you with some of the connections I have to get you into the trial, but the rest is up to you. But our focus is to use this sport for you to get your undergrad or your master's or your uh, PhD and have fun continuing to play the sport that you love. And even though it's a business and we have to win games to keep our job, it's still a sport. It's still basketball. They're still human beings. Um, I
0: think that, you know, if you're a competitor, you want to compete at that highest level. Uh, So if you have an opportunity, you want to take it, you want to go to division one school, but you also hear stories of people that, you know, at a smaller school, they had really great friends. They had a close, uh, you know, they, they knew like a lot of the kids at the school, they, they became close with people and then they go to a huge university and they feel alone because they don't, you know, it's not the same environment and they end up not having this great of an overall uh, experience there.
1: Well, and that, to your point, I think that comes from building bridges between the coaches and the players, the players and the coaches. Um, I think in some respects, having the vulnerability to share, um, you know, a little bit about yourself as a coach and and the players or the student athletes sharing things about their their life journey, their basketball journey, their experiences, and just figuring out how to connect. I, I think there uh, isn't enough connection between players and coaches and coaches and players um, sometimes. Um, but I also think, too, that sometimes you have student athletes when they didn't get or the parents or their, you know, whoever's in their circle. When they don't get to the level that they initially dreamed about or envisioned, they don't respect the olive branch or the opportunity that was given to them for the level that they're at and where they are in that moment. And a lot of times when student athletes are at a certain level, they're probably at the level they were meant to go to or, or be at because of the body of work that they put in prior to that. Uh, Nick Saban said something that I thought was incredible, and I think it really applies um, to all sports. People with or athletes with high standards don't get along with athletes with mediocre standards. And athletes with mediocre standards don't get along with players that have high standards or a high level of competition. You know, I, I tell our student athletes all the time, basketball players are made between march and november you know march and october march you know and august that's when that's when basketball players are made and then by the time the ball goes up hopefully you've done enough with the off-season work that you're prepared for uh, the adversity of the season for those 28 to 30 you know plus games that you're going to play and i think people forget what it took to get started to even have an opportunity to play sports. And then once they get there, there's a lot of complacency or they take it for granted. And I think when you get to high school and you get to college, as you get older, and you know this um, from you know your time, time goes by like that. And it's just time you don't get back. So why not be the best version? If you're not going to be the best version of yourself for yourself or for your team, why do you play competitive sports mm. um and there's a lot of i think some of it comes from the home environment the family environment because i think there's a lot of um uh, entitlement um in some respects i think there's a lot of again people taking it for granted um and not understanding that when you get to college basketball coaches have to win games to keep their jobs um And if you're not winning games, you could be out of a job, you know, within a few years or that season, depending on what level you're at. And so we have to be very careful about who we integrate into our programs as we watch them grow grow through the process, what they do in their social media, Um, when we do our background check on their family, culture and environment. Um, I mean, there's so much intel that we have to do, especially now, Post COVID because of the mental wellness and the emotional wellness issues that a lot of these kids are going through, uh, if you don't bring in and integrate the right players into your program, you could have a tough, tough season. And you and those student athletes uh, won't have a great experience. And I think the other thing that like sometimes coaches that are trying to help their kids get to the next level, forget, it's not about you just getting them placed. It's not about you just getting them placed from a JUCO or from a high school. It's about helping them grow. And it's about you doing what you can in your journey to coach, teach and mentor have hard conversations, things that they need to hear, not what they want to hear, so that they can make that transition. Because you know, when you get to college, it's grimy. And you don't have mom or dad cutting the corners off of your or cutting the crust off of your sandwich. They're not washing your clothes for you every day. You have to time manage and learn how to be self-sufficient and not every student athlete is ready for that. And it doesn't matter what level you go to. It's from JUCO to D1. It doesn't matter. You It's it's a different dynamic from high school. And um, what advice
0: you know, do you have uh for seniors in high school right now who maybe don't have many connections, they want to play college basketball somewhere, you know, they're earnest, they 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 want to play, but they don't have a lot of connections?
1: I would start by looking at the schools in your area, JUCO, high, um, D1, D2, D3, no matter what level it is. Start reaching out to those coaches, send them emails if they have social media, you know, DM them on social media. Tell them, uh, give them your full name. Um, let them know you know, what position you play, what your interests are, what your undergrad is, uh, or what your um, desired undergrad is. Um, start going to their practices, watching their practices, go to their open gyms, go to their games, build bridges with the assistant, with the coaching staff. And most of the time it's going to be the assistant coaches Uh, versus the head coaches because the head coach has so much on their plate they're probably going to designate the assistant coaches to do a lot of that uh, recruitment and, and collaboration I would go to as many team camps and elite camps as you can because sometimes it's just those players haven't been seen and in my journey I've had years where I've recruited nothing but guards and wings and i didn't need a big and a big came to me and we were we were filled at that spot we didn't need any more guards or bigs or we needed um, wings and posts or post players so it just depends on you know what the need is for those programs and that's if you're a guard that's why it's important to you know share that kind of that relevant information with a coach because they may be looking for guards or the other side, and I think parents in that circle and those handlers forget, that coach may have coached at another level or with another program and they have relationships with other coaches. And I've I've done this where I didn't need a guard or a big, but I knew that there was a colleague of mine that did. And I picked up the phone and said, hey coach, I had this kid come to my practice or come to my camp or I've worked out with him over the summer and they're looking for a home, and I understand that you need bigs you know maybe you want to take a look at this young man or this young woman and see if they're a good fit for you um so it's not just about connecting with that big time program because you could have a d one coach that's now coaching n a i you could have a d two coach that's now coaching juco you you know it's so there's or a juco coach that was um a well known coach at another level so it's a combination of things, and I think those student-athletes and their handlers or their circle have to have the humility and the, the vulnerability and the curiosity to explore those things.
2: Yeah. Coach, you, um,
0: you have coached a lot of different people at a lot of different levels, skill levels. Uh, what do you enjoy most about coaching a uh, college women's game?
1: Man, it's so, I and I get this question a lot and people ask me, well, what's the difference? Because they know I've coached on both sides. They ask me, what's the difference be- between men's and women's basketball? And there's the obvious things, you know, the athleticism, the leaping ability and things like that, the speed, the foot speed, the change of direction, but it's still basketball. Uh, with the women's game, I think with women, they're, Depending on you know where you're at, they're less egotistical and they're more uh, fundamentally sound. They're more willing to uh, what's the next thing, coach, that you need me to do, and then what's the next thing after that, and is that good enough, or or is that good, or do I need to be better? Because I think sometimes with um, men's basketball, and this is not the stereotype men's basketball or women's basketball. But sometimes good enough is good enough, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're okay with just um, giving average effort and not having um, standards for themselves. Like, I don't, I try to stay away from rules as much as possible because what I found with rules is if, or rules are, if you don't, if a student athlete like sets a goal or something or has a rule for a goal and they don't achieve that, they measure away themselves based on that or their value on that. I think when you have standards and you have high standards, it's just something that you live by every day. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're coming to basketball practice, you're washing your car, um, you know, you're cutting your lawn, it's just you you do everything with a high standard. Now, you don't have to worry about changing or raising your levels because that level is just always the same. So, Um, you
0: mentioned to me before we started that you have 13 brand new players this year. So, uh, and you said from 12 different coaches, so a lot of different people coming in from different backgrounds, different experiences with basketball. I'm curious, just from a big picture, how are you (laughs) approaching? cohesiveness and culture with, uh, basically, you know, you, it's almost like you're stepping into a, a new program, except you have everything kind of established probably for how you do things, but how are you building the culture, uh, for your program and your team this year?
1: So my job is to just be the GPS for them. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a two way street because we're both learning a lot about each other again when you have so many players that come from so many different coaching philosophies and backgrounds and playing styles i think it's important to not have delusions of grandeur about where you're going to be at because when you're in a honeymoon stages you know it everything looks great until it comes game time and then you have to start disseminating playing time and Uh, changing those rotations and kind of the lineups with the roster for me uh, and our coaching staff. When I, when we recruited these 13 players, I upfront, I shared with them, we're not going to be ready until probably the end of December, because by the time they figure out our coaching style, our system, our philosophies, our standards, our expectations. that But that's everything bundled outside of the gameplay, outside of the practice environment. So we're going to have to have a level of patience, a a level of empathy, uh, because there may be athletes that come in out of that 13 that can't front pivot, reverse pivot. Um, in our program, we want to all of our players to be capable shooters. But if they've been in this box where if they were a post player, they couldn't play above the second hash, us trend, converting them into capable shooters, it may take longer than this year. Right. It may take a few years. It may, But in that process, let's give them um, what skill sets we can Without trying to solve world hunger, help them to be functional and efficient so that we're competitive during games. Put together this schedule before we get to our conference schedule where they have some competitive games and intentionally some games where we're going to get smacked. And I know that we're going to get smacked so that we can see who's going to respond in a positive, proactive way, who are going to be our energy vampires or the cancer to our team. Who do we need to, um, you know, keep with our program, or who do we potentially need to get rid of with our program? Um, and then once we get that, because you know, with a house, when you're building a house, it starts with that first brick. Each of those thirteen players are a brick in the foundation of what we're trying to build. So yeah. we're just going to have to, you know, one at a time. You know, whether we run ball screen or five out or whatever it is and just and then on the defensive side um you know what's our identity and that's the biggest thing what's our identity going to be with this 13 player roster and then when we walk into that gym of our opponent's gym la is known for this or they're known for that and yeah. this is what we have to scout and prepare for so
0: well as people are getting to know these new players who Who's a name? What's a name that people should uh, just be following, kind of know, have in the back of their mind and kind of keep track of on the team uh, as you go forward?
1: Uh, Deja Scott Mitchell. She's an incoming junior from um, Hartnell College, Seaside, California. Um, she No relation? She's, no, no. Re- it's funny because a lot of people, <laughs> you know, you always have like a, uh, you know, someone that you may be related to that you casually come across, but no, no relation, but she's, uh, she's a forward for us, um, that can handle the ball and, um, can do a little bit of everything. Um, I think she's going to be a bright, bright star with our program. Um, another person that we, I think, um, we can really watch out for, uh, Tamia Brown, Kate and Mew, they're guards for us um and they're still learning kind of how to um all of them you know where they can be successful within our system uh but they're growing each game and i think they're growing as players um we have tia bearfield who's a freshman um who i think is a little ahead of the curve right now um with some of the things that she does um and every player has you know deficiencies in their game and areas that they need to grow but uh I think she um, is going to surprise a lot of people this year as well.
0: And Coach, you're not Seventh-day Adventist yourself, but coaching at an Adventist institution, how do you recruit players that may not be Adventists themselves while still you know, working within the framework of a Seventh-day Adventist
1: school? Um, complete transparency and honesty about what the culture is like, what the expectations are um from the normal day-to-day life of a um, student or student athlete to being a part of the adventist community and what that means what those responsibilities are because when i first took the job um i didn't really understand or when i first volunteered i should say i didn't really know much about the adventist community um I are you eating up. more veggies than you did
0: before you started? <laughs> <I'm preparing?
1: laughs> no, actually, it's funny. I'm not. I I, uh, I have a very <laughs> a very you don't uh, have to answer that. Eclectic, you don't have to answer that eclectic diet. <laughs> but uh mm-hmm. it's funny because you know there are in some Adventist communities they don't eat meat at all. Uh, some they're okay. Some drink coffee. Some don't. Yeah. Uh, i didn't know that um they have the sabbath where they from sundown friday to sundown saturday they celebrate and worship god Uh, so a lot of those things were new to me and sometimes i think when people hear these different denominations and the different dynamics of the denominations they start thinking of um like cult-like mentality you know or they think it's that way and i again i grew up christian um and i've had some in the nearly nine or ten years i've been at la sierra i have had some amazing spiritual interactions and experiences with the adventist community i i think spirituality is spirituality i think if you look at it through a narrow lens of well you're adventist and you're presbyterian you're jewish you're protestant i think that's where uh that lens gets skewed because what it's really about is Um, what God wants from us and what he expects us to do. And in order to make that transition in the life there, you know, hereafter. So
0: what priority do Adventist players have in your recruiting? You know, last year I used to have a Adventist Academy tournament. I don't know if they still had it when you started coaching, but uh, they used to have this tournament where probably 10, you know, Adventist schools would come and get to kind of look at some of the players. Are you are you are you just trying to find the best players available, or is there any kind of priority um, that you're looking to try to get at least a couple Adventist players?
1: So for us, what we found sometimes with the Adventist experience is that uh, some of the student athletes aren't as skilled as um, some of the players at the higher higher levels or mm-hmm. the different um, geographical areas or schools. That's not to say that they can't play at our level, they can. Uh, I just with La Sierra, I think we need to do a better job of building more bridges with the Adventist schools, inviting them to our um, campus, inviting them to our sports experience so they they can see what it's like. Um, I think sometimes it's lack of knowledge. I think all, but I also think it's, sometimes lack of partnership and building relationships with people. Um, I know we have, I just had a conversation with uh, someone from La Sierra Academy um, last week and I had a conversation with their principal um, just from a basketball, women's basketball perspective. Of us, we need to get over there and we need to have a camp and share information about La Sierra University and get you guys invited out to games and see what the interest is because we have uh, men's and women's soccer we have women's volleyball we have men's and women's basketball we have baseball we have uh, softball so i just think it's building those bridges but i also think it's um with a lot of the events student athletes being realistic about what it is to play college sports because the transition again from high school to college, it's it's such a different animal. It's like going from middle school to high school, going from freshman to JV, JV to varsity. And I think sometimes with the Adventist student athletes, they don't understand how competitive it is because we have the kids dropping down from other levels or coming from high profile programs that have been on the Nike circuit, the Adidas circuit, the um, Under Armour circuit or just played in a section of the company where no matter where you go the level of competition is so high if you aren't having those experiences it could be overwhelming if you you know try to make that transition even to La Sierra or PUC or Washington Adventist I mean Washington Adventist is an incredible basketball program um and they just keep growing and evolving each year and then you have Oakwood Academy and you have some of these other adventist schools that um as you're watching them grow the competition level just keeps trending upwards each year so it's a big topic of discussion
0: within you know lifelong seventh day adventists who are involved with adventist sports what you're saying is not controversial you know there's always kind of been this uh because adventists came to competition and in interscholastic competition late to so to speak you know there's always been a gap we feel like it's Closing, but there's still, yeah, I understand what you're saying as as far as the talent level goes. So
1: it's. And the gap, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, the gap is closing. I just think in order for that gap to be fully understood and realized, there has to be more bridges built between the Adventist community and the, uh, or those schools. Um, those Adventist high schools and those academies with uh, those Adventist-based colleges. Well, not just Adventist-based, any college, because just because you're Adventist, you don't have to go to Adventist-based school, but there are advantages to doing that um, with some of the uh, financial uh, resources that are available to you and things like that. So,
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's definitely something that if kids... Um, are have an interest in playing somewhere at the next level? They can if they, as long as they have basic athleticism skills that you know are required at the college level, they could find a program an Adventist program. By the way, we have eight schools that uh, that uh, have college basketball programs. Five are NAI and two are UCS no, sorry, USCAA and then another one that's independent. So there's plenty of options and you kids need to be a little more proactive, I would say, in reaching out to some of these coaches like Coach Mitchell here at La Sierra. Um, Coach, I apologize. Like I've just enjoyed our conversation so much and I was not keeping track of the time. So I really appreciate your graciousness. And I think we probably could have talked for another hour here, but I'm going to I'm going to end it here by just asking you, in general, what has basketball given
1: to you? Basketball is the most, to me, the most beautiful sport um, in the world. I mean, it's afforded me opportunities that I never thought um, I would have. And I have built relationships with people that, I mean, they've become lifelong extended family, brothers, sisters, and just it's basketball has done some amazing things for me. I mean, I've been around the kid that is dribbling the ball for the first time to some of the top NBA All Stars that you see today. And to be a part to make the to go from being a player to a coach to, you know, player development coach, I you know, I think that, you know, whether you call yourself a skills coach, player development coach, you're a coach, and to build up players and to help them realize their dreams and have an opportunity to continue to play the sport that they love, it's amazing seeing the light go on when they start to realize, man, I can do this, or this this skill that we worked, this micro skill that we worked on, man, I just applied it to this game and I I had a success moment and Or on the other side of it, you know, I didn't have a success moment. I can't wait to get back in the gym with my coach or Coach Mitchell. It's great. I've been fortunate and blessed, and anyone that if I were going to give some advice to the coaches that are out there, continue to build your legacy, be patient um, with the process. And just try to grow yourself don't be afraid to take chances don't be afraid to walk up to someone and just introduce yourself don't be afraid to make mistakes and um you know look foolish at times because you're just going to it's just going to make you better as a coach and, and help you grow and and uh continue to have a path of lifelong learning because it will it, really, really benefit you wise words Kevin, thank
0: you so much for all of your time, for sharing some of your stories. Really good to get to know you a little bit here, and I uh, really appreciate uh, everything you do at last Year. We're rooting for you, we're supporting you. Best wishes uh, throughout this season here, 2023, 2024. And uh, thanks again for uh, joining us on the Adventist Hoops podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, and this was great. And I uh, love your platform. I follow you every day. If, hey, if you guys aren't watching, uh, <laughs> add Adventist hoops to your, your social media and follow it. It's a great platform. And this gentleman's a great, great advocate.
0: All right. Thanks Kevin.
1: All right. Take care.